You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, so I've been thinking a lot about like my early teaching career, mm-hmm. you know, and I like I like to think about the good times, the things that I did well, but I feel like I spend more time thinking about the things I wish I could go back and redo. Do you feel like that ever? Oh, sure. Sure. I mean, time traveling into uh, to see my past self to give him tips on things. That is definitely one of my top five things that I like to do. Like, think about it. <laughs> And, and so when I when I think about it, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately is that I don't feel like I was prepared to teach the racial component of American history. Right. Oh, yeah. because, you know, I, I you just got the you know problematic narratives your whole life growing up. And even though I went to a pretty critical social studies program and read critical work, I don't think I understood like how to teach the white supremacy and the ways that it was enforced in society, right? Like, so I would teach about the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. and we would say Bull Connor was racist, but like, I wouldn't be able to talk about how racism guided an entire society to make decisions. Right. And I wasn't able to talk about white people's role sophisticated. I think it always focused on the role of black people overcoming civil rights, but not necessarily white people you know, enforcing and pushing and fighting for civil rights and like what that meant and where those ideas came from. That does seem problematic, but definitely, yeah. I mean, that's definitely kind of the way that at least, I mean, that's the way the textbook presents it too. And so like they don't really mm-hmm. do so much examination of that. If you could go back to yourself to young uh, new teacher, Dan, what would you say? <laughs> well, I think for the first thing is confronting it head on, right? Talking about it. I would tell young teacher Dan that, you know, there's a good book coming out called Stamp from the Beginning, A History of Racist Ideas, which I read in this summer in 2020, came out in 2017. And that was really helpful because it actually helped kind of, you know, break through some of the, the, you know, demystify where racism comes from because it kind of walked through what are the ideas that were the foundation of racism and some of them I didn't know. And so that was really helpful. If you were able to bring a, a, a to, to the 2017 book back to, I don't know, 2001, Dan, do you think you'd be able to read it? 2001 is a little before I was teaching, but yeah, I, th- I think so. I definitely think, you know, this is the type of material, though, that you have to engage with over a long period of time. It's not something, you know, that you're just going to learn from one book or any any one source. And so it's something you have to kind of commit to learning more about particularly because schools play a role in miseducating us mm-hmm. around these issues. So we have to unlearn some of the problematic things and replace them. And that doesn't happen overnight. And but I do, I do apologize for assuming that 2000 Dan couldn't read. I just meant I did, <laughs> I did, I did not set that up uh, appropriately. And I, I do apologize for that. You were a smart kid back in 2021. 20, some of my university professors may have thought I wasn't reading <laughs> at the time, um, <laughs> but fortunately some people are writing some great works in the social studies that I think can really confront these issues in ways that our field has often failed to do. And so we've got some friends of the pod really back. Yeah. They've been here before. And so you already know who they are folks. And so welcome back into the pod. Doctors Andrea Hockman and Sarah Shear. Welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. 
Hey, yeah, thanks for having us. We're thrilled to have you back. I know, we're back. I feel like we are almost at like a coffee set or something of like mugs <laughs> between the two of us. Yeah. I wish for we sure. could give you mugs of coffee. But <laughs> no, that would be great. We are, and you're, of course, you are a newly in uh, Seattle, which is kind of exciting. I saw the trees behind you before. That was really yes. neat. Yes, in the imagine, Pacific Northwest. Imagine the trees. Yes. The evergreens and spider season, for those of you in this area, know what I'm talking about. That about is the whole terrible. Other podcast. <laughs> that is absolutely terrible. It looked, when I saw it, it looked like the forest moon of Endor. And I was really excited about your uh, your locale, to be honest with you. Yeah, it does feel slightly Lord of the Rings out here sometimes. But now that I hear about spider seasons, you explain me what that was. That is a terrible place. Why would anyone <laughs> live there? Because it's Seattle. <laughs> the other option is Texas summers, which I'm enduring right now. And But I, it is nice to know that, like, something wrong with Seattle, because otherwise I just have, like, 24-7 jealousy of people living in more moderate weather. Yeah. That's yeah. the place just, where they throw fish spiders. at people, right? I'm just grateful to live in Utah where there's no humidity and very few mosquitoes <laughs> coming from Missouri. It's, it's been a, a drastic but it ne- needed change. Mm-hmm. Interesting. The the Salt Lake, like, that's wild. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep, it is. <laughs> so not to get too far off topic, can, can you just tell us a little bit about the work? You've already been on the podcast, but can you remind our listeners a little bit about the work you've been doing in your careers? Sure. I am an assistant professor of social studies and cultural studies education at Utah State University in Logan, Utah. And my research focuses on um, the enactment of racialized pedagogies in PK through 20 classrooms and how uh, we can prepare social studies teachers to disrupt whiteness in their curriculum decisions, pedagogical choices, and stances within their educational spaces. Yeah, the last time I was here, I was still faculty at Penn State. I've thus Made my move across the across the continent. I'm now an assistant professor of social studies and multicultural education at the University of Washington, Bothell. So just outside the Seattle proper area. And my work mostly examines settler colonialism in social studies curriculum and the representations of indigeneity and advocating for indigenous civics and indigenous studies within social studies education and teacher education and also kind of disrupting the ways we think about research and wanting to disrupt um, white supremacy and settler colonialism in those spaces as well. Could we just briefly, and I apologize, how can we disrupt research? You might just talking a little bit about that. That's interesting. Yeah, the the way that we do it, the way that we make the research decisions, you know, so just thinking about why we do research, you know, from the jump, you know, is a really important question to ask ourselves before we launch in, because that can be very colonizing. Research is a very colonizing space. I mean, we're oftentimes thinking about, you know, observing and, you know, drawing conclusions and there's like this gaze and it's often on the other. And so there's a there's a real important need. And some of our the authors in, in our book that we're here to talk about actually talk about this as well. You know, the, the need to really think about the intentions of research. Why are we doing it? And for whose benefit are we doing it? And who's, you know, is it staying within academia? Because then is it really helping anyone? You know, what are we why are we doing this? And how are we making the decisions to about um, collecting data and analyzing it and sharing it is really important to disrupt, you know, all these supremacist systems. 
So the two of you are here, well, because we like having you on the podcast, obviously, but also because you all helped to edit a really, I would say, groundbreaking book for our field because it's something that probably has not been prominent in our field previously. Can you all tell us a little bit about this this book and the project associated with it? Sure. Yeah, the book, uh, Marking the Invisible, Articulating Whiteness in Social Studies Education, um, is out this year, 2020, and Sarah and I are really excited about bringing it forth and helping to usher forward the work of all of our amazing authors. But I think one of the things that was really important to us before we started this was recognizing that there has been, um, for a long time, work that's talked about race and racism that within social studies. Um, scholars have, have been here doing this work. So we tried to lay that foundation as we, as we went to make sure that we were paying, uh, uh, we were honoring the work that we were building from and recognizing that the field hasn't always been welcoming to the work uh, around race and, and racism and whiteness. And that not only not welcoming, but also serving the purposes of white supremacy. So this book is an attempt uh, to gather some work that articulates that, that calls into question social studies, NCSS, KUFA, ARA's relationship to uh, reliance upon whiteness, and also uh, demonstrating efforts of teachers and researchers who have pushed beyond that relationship and, and have worked to decenter it, decenter whiteness from uh, social studies teaching and research. Now, I know we're going to hear from, and I do appreciate the fact that you brought all these authors on uh, our podcast, which we'll hear from later. This seems like a, a major undertaking. How did you go about organizing your th- this book? Yeah, so Sarah and I sat down and started to think about, you know, what are the components of social studies education and research that all are kind of under the umbrella that we call social studies. So we thought about theory and we thought about research and we thought about K-12 practices and teacher education and also personal identity. How do teachers take up and researchers take up this work within themselves? So we we sent a call out for those specific uh, categories or subheadings, and we're looking for work that you know could paint a broad picture of the depths to which whiteness is embedded within our field. You know, sometimes I, I think we think it's oh there's a person that's racist or that there's a, a historical historical fact that uh, or event that was definitely white supremacist, but it's more pervasive than that. And I think that's where the title comes in as well, marking the invisible and invisible in quotation marks, meaning whiteness is everywhere. And for white people, it's often considered invisible, but for people of color and other marginalized communities, whiteness is very present. Um, It's very visible. So part of the work of this chapter is naming those things that have gone unseen and, and, and gone relied upon by white social studies for too long. So that way, the voices and work of, of non-white folks, of Black, Indigenous, Brown, queer, and other scholars can help us reframe what we call social studies and how we do the work of social studies teaching. Yeah, I think, too, just to continue on that, it was really important for for us as, you know, as white scholars, as white teacher educators, to just lay it out very openly and honestly from the beginning and engage in that self-interrogation and, and model it for readers, because that's something that, you know, that we really need to do a better job of, especially, you know, thinking about teacher education is helping, especially the white pre-service teachers and, and educators have that critical self-reflection 
kind of how you guys were kind of talking in the beginning, like if you could go back to your younger self, you know, what are the what are the things that we need to do? And so Andrea and I really wanted to be just very blunt and, you know, open and transparent and ask the authors to do the same. And they, you know, they were very eager to, you know, to share. And that's something that social studies has not been very welcoming to a lot of and 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 just writing in general, just like that, like laying laying bare our identities and and talking about ourselves in a in a critical way. And so that was something that we really wanted to make sure that while we're talking about whiteness and white supremacy, we're not continuing to give it power and we're not centering it even though we're still talking about it. So, you know, and, and navigating that tense space and our, and our authors take that on across a multitude of areas, which is really exciting for this book. Sarah, when you talk about kind of laying bare kind of what, what maybe would be your positionality and your experience and your implications in white supremacy and racism, I mean, is that the type of work we can do across our teaching, our research, and our writing? Yeah, I think we I think we absolutely need to, you know, especially for, you know, white identifying educators and, and scholars and 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 understanding the power that comes with that. And also the complexities of of that and the complexities of whiteness. So even just thinking about myself as an Ashkenazi Jew, right, the ways the ways that Judaism assimilated into whiteness in the United States. And then there's still that contentious, you know, you can be white if, you know, asterisks. And so really, I think it's just it's really important work to self interrogate where we come from, not only in terms of whiteness, but settler colonialism, you know, thinking about the lands in which we live and the theft of those lands and the, the you know, the ongoing, you know, refusal to, you know, to honor, tri- you know, tribal sovereignty here. And so there's there's so many layers, um, you know, it's not just one thing. And I think a lot of times, you know, we're we're working with white pre-service teachers or with, you know, white scholars and everyone's, you know, good intentioned. But what is, you know, good intentions can still cause harm um, and cause harm quite often. Um, and so, you know, really really digging in and understanding where we come from, who we are, and the positions that we have in certain spaces. Yeah, I think an, an important thing, too, I was reminded of when you asked that question, Dan, is that this is a continual process, um, that there isn't a checkbox of, all right, now I've decentered whitening whiteness. All right, now I'm anti-racist. Like, yeah, like I did it all right. Like we're constantly yeah, I've done all these things. Yeah, like we're yeah. constantly checking in. Right. So I think even, you know, the editing process for this book was a constant process of self-reflection for us as editors, as we provided feedback to authors, you know, that's a constant revision of uh, revisiting of what we know, what we've learned, what we're learning. And then we asked authors to revisit that too, as they can, you know, did rounds of revision and going back to the literature and going back to their, their, their work to, to see how that changes their interpretations. Because I think it can be easy to assume, especially if we're thinking about what Sarah mentioned earlier about kind of the the normative nature of research, the normative nature of teaching, that it's something that can be accomplished and then finished and then moved on from. But to truly 
decenter something that's been a strangle had had a stranglehold over an entire field since its existence over in a country over the entire world since its existence it's not a checkbox it's 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 constant work a constant commitments and while this book was a snapshot in time we hope that in reading the chapters that we've assembled that it will inspire folks to to do some of the things that they've read, they've read, to reflect on their own practice, to not do some of the things that they're that they're, that they're reading about, uh, some of the negative examples that are interrogated, mm. uh, and just you know always being willing to question one's relationship to whiteness, mm. especially for white scholars and teachers, but also for scholars of color who exist in a world where whiteness is dominant. I think I think one thing that uh, I've found challenging, which I'm I'm curious if your book takes up or if it takes a different approach, is that you know, as you struggle with, you know, growing in, in, you know, recognizing and understanding whiteness and com- and your complicity in, you know, white structures and the way it's privileged you in different situations, um, there's also a challenge to not center yourself as you're doing this work, right? Or to not to take up more space and realize that a lot of critical scholars of color have been saying these things for years and pointing these things out and to continue to center them. So that's kind of this the challenge, right, as we do this work, that there's kind of some humility that needs to come along with the the constant journey you're on, or at least that's kind of the way I've I've tried to approach it. And I know I've made more mistakes than I want to make along this journey, but just keep kind of committing to doing the work. Absolutely. I think as scholars wanting to talk about this behemoth whiteness and disrupting it and challenging it and moving it aside, we have to be really careful about how we do that so we don't just perpetuate it over and over again. And that was part of the uh, intentional editing process that Sarah and I went through with alongside the authors was, you know, when we got their first issue or first uh, versions in, it's the first, one of the first things we looked at is, okay, who are you citing and who are exactly. you, who are you providing space to? If we're going to talk about whiteness, it's not going to be a bunch of white scholars in the, in the references because white folks aren't the first people to talk about this. We know that our introduction kind of attempts to kind of trace some of these conversations that have been happening uh, for decades, uh, particularly by scholars of color and, and public figures of color who are noting the kind of the, the, the damage that whiteness does. So that was part of our intentional work with authors was to make sure that if, if they didn't know who they should be citing, that we provided some, some recommendations for them to go do additional work and then come back with revisions that were more reflective of, you know, building on where this work has started from and that we weren't creating anything new here, that these conversations have long started. Perhaps we're just shedding light on them in a way that social studies hasn't done before. But it absolutely requires commitment. And it's one of the things we talk about with syllabus construction, with scholarship, you know, across teaching, like who you give space to is who you privilege. And in a book about whiteness, it can't be just white folks. And we tried to do that with who we included in, in the authorship, but also who the authors were citing, how we talked about that um, throughout the text. Mm-hmm. And um, even taking on a, that. you know, taking on APA, because, yeah. you know, APA forever was, you know, required the capitalization of the W for white, but not the capitalization of the B, for example, in black or the I in indigenous and so we purposefully and intentionally asked authors to go in and reverse, you know, reverse capitalize in their pieces, you know, because it is a it's a political act and it's a, a moral act, just like citations. You know, who are you citing is who you're giving space to and who you're recognizing as the knowledge keepers. And 
social studies in particular has a long history of of not honoring you know the the knowledge of indigenous scholars and scholars of scholars of color and queer scholars so that was something that was really important to us so can you tell us a little bit more so can you explain why we should capitalize uh, black and indigenous and not capitalize white so there's actually some some great pieces out in the publication world and we and we include them in, in some of our citations and maybe we can throw a couple of them in the in the liner notes um, for this episode so people can see the conversation that's been ongoing about the politics of capitalizing, you know, identity, you know, and, and APA requiring the W to be capitalized for years, but lowercasing the I in indigenous. And uh, my own pieces have had this happen in copy editing where, you know, editors have gone in and made the capital I lowercase and like, absolutely not. This is <laughs> your, you know, the, this is another case of colonial colonialism at work and supremacy at work. You know, capitalizing something gives it power, you know, in, on the page. And so, you know, it's it's really important to reverse engineer those capitalizations and capitalize the B you know, capitalize the I. Um, Andrea, this was something important to you too. You know, what are your... Yeah, and we talk, we talk about this in the introduction. We kind of go through our, the, the, the decisions that we were intentional with in terms of how, okay, how can we as editors push for the decentering of whiteness in this text? You know, there's only so much we can do, but we tried to do some things kind of across every chapter that would be kind of a universal attempt at that. And Capitalization was one of them, and then, like I said, we cite several of the, of the of these conversations that have existed prior to us. It's by no means we're not by any means the first people to make yeah. this argument. It's uh, a big issue in APA. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think and I think um, even with our publishers, we had to be we had to double check every single chapter mm-hmm. because whoever did the copy editing wasn't informed that that was something we were doing. So we had to make sure that throughout the whole book that it was uh, uniform. So hopefully we caught everything. I'm not sure. I think we did. But yeah, I think it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's one way to be intentional about the humanity of people as well. And I think in remembering that, you know, whiteness, by capitalizing the W, it gives it more power than it needs to have. And mm-hmm. I think it's a small thing, but it, I think it's a powerful way to kind of change the conversation a bit. So I also like that APA, this is far less important, but that they made it so you don't have to find the place of the book anymore, which um, books are published in many places. So that was always, uh, so I'm glad APA is moving in a good direction. One comment you all made that I think some people who are not familiar with this work may ask is, what, is what do you mean by decentering whiteness? Because I think some white people probably initially react to making that makes them feel like less important or that somehow they're be they're being marginalized and which I think some people would, you know, frame that as white fragility. So what do you mean when you say decenter whiteness? Well, I think first we have to talk about what is whiteness. Whiteness is is more than just the color of someone's skin. Right. It's a system uh, of cataloging, prioritizing, privileging and, and dehumanizing or, or humanizing. And so it's not just white people. It's the system that affords white people privileges. It's the system that dehumanizes people who don't have white skin. So I think we have to think about it 
beyond the individual self, which is kind of the first trap that people fall in when they're trying to talk about race. It's not just individual ideas, it's systems, it's structures, it's ways of knowing, it's ways of being. So to decenter whiteness then would be to remove white ways of knowing white systems and structures from the middle of social studies teaching and learning and instead centralize the voices of people who have been marginalized by whiteness and the stories of in the, the systems and structures marginalized by whiteness. I think one of the examples and, and Sarah used in one of your books is just the very idea that manifest destiny, right? For example, as a concept is sometimes included in social studies curriculum without being called racist. It's always presented as acceptable, right? Manifest destiny is presented always as our like, our thing you know it's the ultimate center of the social studies story i mean social studies is the story of you know the creation of this monster that is the you know the colonial america you know the mentality of you know we, we want what we want and we're going to take it because we have the power to do that and it's manifested you know by the great beyond and be damned whoever is in the way you know, this is what this is the social studies curriculum. And, and this is has been the center of social studies forever. It's that really dangerous single story that's extremely harmful mm-hmm. to every to everyone, because it's built on, you know, these structures that that Andrea just outlined for us. And, you know, this this, you know, dual like this dual problem that is you know white supremacy and settler colonialism right these things are not events you know there are events within them right and but they are structures and they constantly evolve and that kind of goes back to something we were talking about earlier which is you know remaining constantly vigilant and doing that self-reflection right because colonialism and white supremacy like they evolve to maintain their power and so you have to constantly be checking how it's changing itself to in order to do this work yeah i think i think sometimes particularly white people think that when we're talking about whiteness or decentering whiteness that guilt is a feeling that should be accompanying that white guilt that they were trying to make people feel responsible for things in the past or that they should feel guilty for things that their ancestors did before them and i I feel like guilt is a wasted It's a wasted emotion that produces no results that are positive or that promote change. Uh, So decentering whiteness has nothing to do about making people feel guilty. It has nothing to do with, you know, making, pointing out students and making them feel bad for things that have happened. But it's about recognition for our continued relationship to systems that have oppressed other people. Mm -hmm. Um, It's about holding account for the things that we do and and how we perpetuate problems um, that we maybe don't see, but that exist. So we have to take a critical eye to the way that whiteness informs every part of the educational landscape, which definitely centers on social studies. We like to see social studies as the umbrella subject that kind of connects all others. Well, then we have a lot of work to do. If we're going to to strip away the relationship of whiteness with an umbrella, it's almost as though if we're going to go with the umbrella analogy, that whiteness is the frame on which the umbrella of education is set. You know, uh, so I think we have to be willing to break the umbrella if we're going to um, really try to make education more equitable for everyone. So 
Can you tell us a little bit about um, some of the chapters in the book? And, you know, I'm going to, if I can request, I would love for you to start with the forward, which is written by two of our favorite people, uh, my colleague, Dr. Amanda Vickery, who's been on the podcast, and our most recent podcast guest, Dr. Kristen Duncan. Can you tell us a little bit about the the forward and and how it sets up the book? She was great. I enjoyed her. Obviously, Amanda Vickery is fantastic. Sure. Yeah, we were so fortunate that uh, doctors Vickery and Duncan uh, were willing to write this forward to the text. You know, their perspective on social studies and whiteness um, is so valuable. And I, we, we asked them because we knew that the tone that they would take would be strong and critical and what we needed to really launch this book, you know, to talk about whiteness. So they, what I appreciate about their chapter, one of the things I love all of it, but one of the things I appreciate is the way that they they draw on past literature beyond the field of social studies to frame the effort to lift the veil is what the, the, the chapter is called um, and on decentering whiteness. You know, the work of Ralph Ellison, Brittany Cooper, Toni Morrison and, and so many others are just such a powerful way to frame this conversation and, and introduce readers to the work that needs to be done. And again, drawing on that legacy and that history of scholars and writers of color, uh, queer scholars beyond the field of social studies uh, and within it, they quote, they cite several social studies scholars as well, but just really lay a strong foundation of, look, this work has been happening, but we need to do it better and stronger within our field. What are some of the other chapters? I know we can't go through them all, but what for teachers that are looking to understand this topic better and jump into the book, what are some of the the types of topics they can they can explore through the book? Yeah, so we were really intentional uh, to you know to think about this work and and organize the book in such a way that would be really be- that would be beneficial to classroom teachers and and to pre-service teachers and to researchers really just to everybody because you know this is just this is something social studies scholars and community members and and activists have been you know asking social studies to do for years and social studies you know just kind of bats around it and you know try you know sometimes does it so we we really wanted to be intentional with sections and so we have sections on curriculum you know, looking at the textbooks, looking at the standards, right? Looking at the materials that we use. We have sections on teacher ed, right? Really thinking about how are we training future generations of teachers to do this work? How are we modeling or need to model, you know, this work for, for our future teachers? You know, what's happening in classrooms at the elementary, middle, and secondary level? You know, what, what things are teachers doing? What questions do we still need to be asking you know, for our classroom teachers. And we have classroom teachers who contribute as authors. We have um, pre-service teachers and, and faculty, right? So the, the authorship also spans the community, which was really exciting to have just so many voices come to the table and, and also to, to look at some theory, you know, for those of us who, you know, looking at research or thinking, you know, in some other spaces, thinking about other you know, theoretical frames that could help us interrogate whiteness, right? So thinking about like Asian critical race theory, um, looking at settler colonialism, you know, settler colonial theory, thinking about those things. And so it's, it's a huge, it's a huge range and everyone, you know, when they get the book, you know, it's, it's a hefty, you know, it's got weight, which is exciting. And I think another section that's really important too, that classroom teachers in particular will, will like, you know, we have some chapters looking at museums, 
right? How are, you know, how is whiteness, you know, an, an issue in museums and then the curriculum and the, the learning that we have in museum spaces, as well as the National Council for the Social Studies. Great chapter from Sarah Des Moines, just really, really tracing the, the not so good things NCSS has not, you know, taken responsibility um, to be a leader on this and looking at the position statements. So, you know, curriculum, classrooms, our organization, our conference. So it's really exciting to have just so many people dedicated to this work and, and really come and push push the envelope in a number of ways. So yeah, I think there's a I think the chapters offer a lot depending on the you know the audience. We we I think we had teacher education and researchers in mind, as Sarah mentioned, but there are several chapters that are written by practicing teachers, one by a pre-service teacher reflecting on his attempt to do anti-racist work as a pre-service teacher. And we also have work from full professors. So, you know, I think we've we tried to, you know, like I said before, take a wide approach to this to not only to recognize how wide whiteness is in our field, but also to hear from different kinds of people about their work to dis- decenter and disrupt whiteness. So I think there's, you know, there's pedagogical approaches, there's curriculum analyses, there's policy investigations, there's, you know, the, the text wraps up with some personal reflections and, and self-interrogations about work with whiteness. So there's a, like, there's so many different things, um, you know, within the book, uh, all pulled together with the uh, the shared goal of decentering and disrupting whiteness in the field. Including including a chapter from our colleagues to the north in Canada. You know, so it's, you know, thinking, you know, also beyond the, the boundaries and borders of the U.S., which social studies also tends to become, be really U.S.-centric in everything that we do. Um, and so it was great to have colleagues in Canada um, also contribute, talking about the, you know, the the problematics and the struggles and the issues and the, the work to confront this in Canada is a really important contribution. Mm-hmm. I also appreciated the work that we were able to get from scholars outside of social studies. We had a few chapters written, not from social studies professionals, but folks who intersect and, and, and worked with, work with social studies. So getting their perspective on our field and our work, I think also was really interesting to, to kind of just think with and think through as we engaged in this work. Well, I think this this book will be really helpful. And I know, you know, using the book in your classes, right, for those who are teaching at the secondary level is a great way to get started on this. Just this summer, I was teaching a curriculum studies class and I made the shift to using your colleague's book, uh, Wayne Al, Brown and Dolores Calderon, um, on the reclaiming the multicultural roots of U.S. curriculum, communities of color and official knowledge in education. And I'll link it in the show notes. But it really transformed the ways we talked about curriculum, because I think that that entire field of curriculum studies centers, you know, the kind of white uh, men who were in power to set curriculum in the mm-hmm. beginning of the 20th century for a lot of schools um, and doesn't recognize how often, you know, scholars, you know, black, indigenous and other people of color were setting curriculum, but they don't get recognized for that mm-hmm. work um, because it wasn't, you know, made by the state or whatever it is. And so. I think the same thing with a book like this, right? Like inserting this, inserting scholars of color who are doing critical, equitable work can really change the tone of it. And I know it's a challenge for social studies teachers. Um, I remember even just seeing this summer a tweet from a, a great social studies educator who was reading a lot of anti-racist literature, as a lot of white people are doing right now. Um, and they had that kind of on their board of things to do. But then they were 
they were planning out the other things to do. And I didn't see how those books translated into their teaching, right? Mm -hmm. Like their teaching was like yeah. other stuff and yeah. they were reading the books, but it wasn't. And so this has to be kind of part of it. And man, there's so much to do just even with starting with curriculum, but then thinking about your pedagogy. And so I hope, I hope well, these authors in this book can really help everyone, you know, think through that. Well, and I want to, I also want to, you know, put a plug in because this is another, this has always been an issue for me the, of concern is, is so much attention in social studies conversations in from is as social studies is only middle school or high school and really want to showcase the number of elementary educators who are in this book and really, really pushing a, amazing conversations in elementary classrooms and in um, research and, you know, curricular spaces and teacher prep spaces to, to really make social studies at the elementary, you know, an early childhood level because that because they are doing it, you know, social studies does happen in those classrooms. We might not identify it as that per se. Um, and there is always the struggle for time. But really, really making social studies attend to the fact that we are pre-K through, you know, beyond, you know, social studies is is not just for middle school and high school students. Then and, and we have some great chapters in here about elementary social studies and the, the work of confronting whiteness um, at the elementary level, in particular, like using picture books, for example. Yeah, I was just thinking, Dan, about all the book clubs I've seen people post about all summer long, anti-racist book clubs. I'm going to go read this book by this great author and I'm going to, you know, talk about anti-racism. And I've been wondering about folks who are making those posts. What are they going to do in September? What are they going to do in January? What are they going to do next year when... What are they going to do in November? When the issues aren't fresh on their mind like they have been all summer. And I think one, one thing I hope readers and listeners take from this podcast and readers take from this book is that if you're just going to read it and put it on your shelf, then you're not doing the work. Mm -hmm. um, as every chapter in this book attests, it's an engagement, it's a commitment, it's an ongoing journal journey. And this isn't a book club book that you sit around and drink wine and, and chat about. This is the work that's calling you to do more work on yourself, in your classrooms, in your research. And that's in, in our in our epilogue. That's one of the things that Sarah and I point to is that this is a hopefully a, the continuation of a, a launching towards more work. Like we're building on work that's already been here, but we're pushing the readers and the writers of this book uh, to, to to continue in in the effort. This is not the solution. It's it's one of many tools that we have. And I hope that when folks engage with the book, that that's how they see it and that they don't take a chapter and, and plug it in a syllabus and call it done, because that really does miss the point of anti-racist work, of decentering anything, and of what we task the authors with doing when we set out to make this book. I think it it's like in episode 148, we had um, two of our great doctoral students at the University of North Texas, Marquita Foster and Danella Dinegy. And they said, don't be performative, you know, and I think there's a there's a, that can happen really easily with this, that when you do this work, it's a commitment to really do it. And and again, you guys have shown that. So I think you're you're really modeling that. And and we appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. So you know, and I think and I think also just, you know, that you you're, you're probably going to screw it up at some point. Yeah. You know, and, and you just you own it. Right. You own it and you just you keep working to do better. And you, you know, embrace and, and welcome critique from friends and, you know, that that critical friendship and that allyship across different spaces and 
that that you know self interrogation that needs to go with it and and you just you just keep going you know because it's it's not about a tweet or a Facebook post and like, Oh, look, I pat myself on the back. I did so great. I read this book. You know, it's, it's the long struggle. It's, you know, it's a, it's a journey. Get something wrong, white people, and you get some feedback, just, just accept it and don't, (laughs) don't break down. (laughs) Dan and Michael, thanks so much for having us hear this. Uh, Thank you. And we're so grateful that you provided space for our, the authors to share some uh, summaries of their work. So coming up now is some uh, clips from the authors talking about the work that they've contributed to this to this book. Hey, y'all. Uh, my name is Neil Shanks, and I'm at Baylor University. And along with Delandria Hall from the University of Texas of Austin, we wrote a chapter for Martin the Invisible called Hope in the Dismal Science, a Race-Centered Redirection of Economics Curriculum. And essentially what we try to do in this chapter is use this idea of excavating standards, which is a concept from Amanda Vickery, Anthony Brown, and Kathleen Holmes um, that says basically when you don't find race in, in the standards, state or national, you dig in and try to find places where it's obviously relevant, even if it's not explicitly stated. And so we kind of took that approach uh, and used notions of critical race theory to excavate the Texas economic standards. Um, Texas is a state that's kind of unique in some ways in the way that it writes its economic standards. You know, it's, it's definitely ideologically driven to support the free enterprise system, but in a lot of ways, it's very similar to other states. It draws on the, the voluntary national content standards, which are uh, pretty ubiquitous throughout the country. And so what we find is obviously is it's not shocking that the economic standards in Texas don't mention race at all and really don't talk about, you know, disparities between groups. It's it's a pretty straightforward, I guess, uh, attempt to promote free enterprise and the kind of attended race neutrality that comes along with that. Um, but we were able to use these four components of, of critical race theory the endemic nature of race, counter storytelling, interest convergence, and critique of liberalism to, as I say, dig in, excavate, and uncover opportunities to teach race in economics. And so for teachers interested in doing that, we offer not just a sort of review of the standards and where that might occur, but just some brief ideas for how you might include race in your class. So for example, if you're talking about choice in economics. You know, a lot of times in economics, we talk about choice as something that's, uh, you know, unencumbered and everybody has an equal opportunity to make choices. And that kind of places the onus on the individual for economic decisions. And what we find if we look at, you know, history of, of redlining and zoning practices in the United States, say that, you know, people don't necessarily have a choice about where they can live and therefore um, what might be most economically advantageous uh, for them to do. We see that throughout a lot of different economic decisions. And so it's important to explore that in an economics class. So that's an example of just how, you know, race is endemic and in a standard, in standards about choice, we might want to include racial analysis. Throughout the chapter, uh, we have some opportunities for you to tell counter stories that show racial narratives and the way that Towns are, are segregated and served by financial institutions. Talk about you know, how you might include 
ideas about reparations um, or structural changes as opposed to sort of liberalist, gradualist notions of, of improving economic disparities. We have some good intersections, I think, with history and with civics and really just show how it's imperative that teachers and economics mine the standards and do so in a humanizing way. Hi, my name is Sarah Demoyne, and I'm an assistant professor of elementary education at Auburn University. I was fortunate to be able to include my work with other thoughtful scholars in Marking the Invisible, Articulating Whiteness in Social Studies Education. I wrote chapter seven titled, Where is Race? A Critical Whiteness Studies Analysis of NCSS Position Statements. Building from Patricia Marshall's 2003 analysis of NCSS position statements, I proposed a new study examining how and to what extent NCSS has addressed race and racism in its position statements from 2004 to 2018. Using critical whiteness studies and white social studies as analytical frameworks, I found NCSS maintained a colorblind or color evasive discourse, remained unwilling to name racism, and minimize the racist legacies in U.S. history by protecting the dominant narrative. Although the recent 2018 Towards Responsibility, Social Studies Education that Respects and Affirms Indigenous Peoples and Nations seem to contradict this pattern. Within the chapter, I call for NCSS to develop a position statement that specifically addressed systemic racism in the United States, both historically and present day, using the 2018 Towards Responsibility statement as an example. Further, I encouraged NCSS and CUFA members to petition the NCSS House of Delegates and NCSS Board of Directors to develop and approve such a position statement. At this time, I'm thankful to report that at the 2019 House of Delegates meeting, CUFA delegates proposed the Racial Literacy and Social Studies Resolution, which was approved in the House of, Dele of Delegates meeting and subsequently approved by the NCSS Board of Directors. Hopefully, the Board of Directors will quickly move forward to begin the process of writing an NCSS position statement focused on race and racism in social studies education. This is Bretton Varga from California State University, Chico, and I'm one of the co-authors of Chapter 12, Unveiling Racism and Whiteness Supremacy Through Historiography. On behalf of the chapter's other co-author, Von Zell Augusto from the University of South Florida, I'm excited to introduce our work and hopefully inspire other listeners to not only explore the text, but also push the work further with other artists that resonate with them. The impetus for this project was the TED Talk of renowned artist Titus Kafar, who recently had his work featured on the cover of Time Magazine this past June. After sharing the TED Talk with Von Zell, we quickly realized that we both had a passion for art and that Kafar's historically provocative artwork could offer teachers a powerful tool for engaging learners in conversations about racism and whiteness supremacy. From my own experience working with pre-service teachers, there's often a gap between the critical perspectives we work towards in our social studies methods courses and practice within the classroom. More often than not, teachers would feel this fire to challenge normative approaches to social studies education, but then panic in front of living students and default back to curricular materials that failed to address topics relating to race or confront whiteness supremacy. With this in mind, our chapter presents an artistic framework, which we call historiography. 
It foregrounds currents of critical race theory in a way that guides viewers of artwork to think differently about the problematic history that continues to plague curricular materials in our schools to this day. Thinking with CRT, historiography uses the artwork to cultivate composite counter-narratives that again seek to disrupt and dismantle racist narratives that historically have been couched in whiteness. In the chapter, we curate a hypothetical art show titled Whiteness, Art, and Social Studies that introduces four of Kafar's paintings. Each painting is accompanied by a composite counter-narrative that was inspired by what is visually depicted in the art and tenets of CRT. In the onset of this project, Von Zell and I discussed taking an approach that would have a degree of flexibility and become something teachers could utilize based on their artistic passions and interests. Since the book came out, we have continued to push the work further and have found inspiration in another artist, Mark Bradford. I think for me, the possibilities of how historiography can continue to shift and evolve is really exciting. We've also worked with different groups within various contexts using historiography to generate artwork. Teachers, administrators, graduate students, and faculty members generated works of art that were then leveraged into composite counter-narratives. If I had to summarize our chapter in just a few words, they would be historically provocative art, CRT, and composite counter-narratives. Speaking on behalf of Von Zell and myself, we look forward to hearing how readers take up the work and reshape it in an effort to disrupt racism and whiteness supremacy. Hi, I am Lisa Buchanan, and I'm an Associate Professor of Education at Elon University in Elon, North Carolina. And I'm Kara Ward. I'm a faculty member in the College of Education at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our chapter is entitled Whiteness Narratives on Miscegenation, Loving versus Virginia as a Medium for Examining Racism in the South. In this chapter, we used a racial, pedagogical, content knowledge framework and tenets of anti-racist education to examine an often marginalized aspect of the civil rights movement, anti-miscegenation laws. In order to examine the Supreme Court case, we used two films about the case, The Loving Story and Loving. Our chapter includes an overview of Loving versus Virginia, the case, and also anti-miscegenation laws in the United States. The second half of our chapter includes suggested segments for each of the films, vocabulary and guiding questions, and then we provide supplemental resources for the films. A little bit about the two films. The Loving Story is a 2012 documentary produced by HBO. It's especially helpful in developing content knowledge for three reasons. It provides archival footage, including Life Magazine's film and photography. It prioritizes interviews with the Loving's relatives and locals, and it explains the role of the ACLU in moving the case from Virginia to a ruling that struck down anti-miscegenation laws across the nation. And Loving, the feature film, is from 2016, and this film provides a pretty accurate portrayal of Caroline County, Virginia, uh, Mildred and Richard's family relationships, their arrest, and also their experience when they were working with Life Magazine. In the chapter, we discuss anti-miscegenation laws as institutionalized racism. We also talk about how even progressive films need to be interrogated for how they present hero narratives and whiteness. And we also examine how teachers who prioritize anti-racist education can use Loving versus Virginia to examine the larger relationship between racist unconstitutional laws and constitutional rights. 
So we hope you'll use this chapter in working with K-12 students and beginning teachers, and we would welcome your feedback on the chapter and would love to hear how you use it in the classroom. Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Erica Southworth. I'm an Associate Professor of Education at St. Norbert College, and I had the privilege of writing Chapter 15, which is titled, Pictures Speak Louder, Portraying Early Middle Eastern Religious Women as White and Passive in Textbook Imagery. So my chapter details how I used critical race theory and feminist theory in conjunction with imagery discourse analysis to really examine the intersectionality of race and gender in textbooks, religious narratives. The impetus for my study emerged after I had reviewed over 20 content analysis studies investigating women's agency in social studies textbooks, and the findings revealed that there was an absence on whether or not textbook imagery accurately portrayed ancient religious leaders as people of color, as well as an absence of whether or not the imagery of these prominent religious leaders was, to any degree, gender balanced. So in my study, I reviewed and analyzed nine nationally available 21st century world history textbooks from the United States to really determine, first, if textbook imagery accurately portrayed early religious leaders of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam as people of color, and then second, how, uh, how the early female religious leaders were portrayed in textbook imagery in comparison to their male counterparts. As you can imagine, the findings were not surprising and very unfortunate. White social studies is very pervasive in textbooks, including the imagery, as the majority of the imagery in these textbooks portrayed early religious leaders as white. Additionally, in terms of female agency, some female religious agents were omitted completely and others were that were included were severely marginalized and often portrayed in imagery as inactive and passive in comparison to their male counterparts who are often the focal points of the image um, and often involved in an activity or, or a leadership role of some sort. Further in the chapter, I also note how students utilizing textbooks with this type of imagery might come to accept the textbook's portrayal of white male religious agents as accurate and therefore believe that people of color were only observers of religious history. So to correct those inaccuracies, I encourage educators to draw on social activism, which of course is a shared component of both critical race theory and feminist theory, and use that as an avenue for presenting ethnically accurate imagery to students. I also assist by providing ethnically accurate imagery examples of early religious female leaders from my study as a starting point for educators to use. Thank you for the opportunity to share an overview of my chapter. My name is Jenny Gallagher. I'm an assistant professor at East Carolina University. I wrote chapter 16 of the book, which is entitled Navigating Difficult Knowledge But Still Evading Race, The Overwhelming Effects of Whiteness in Doubly Constrained Civil Rights Teaching. This chapter utilizes data from my dissertation, which was a multi-case study of how social studies teachers employ disciplinary inquiry practices to support social justice-oriented goals. The focus of the chapter is on two of my participants, Daphne and Thelma, who both espoused anti-racist goals for their instructional units on the civil rights movement. While both were veteran teachers, Daphne was an elementary teacher and Thelma was a high school teacher. The chapter shares findings from analysis of data from interviews and focus groups with them, as well as observations of their teaching. 
The takeaway I hope that readers get from the chapter is that Daphne and Thelma were both able to identify the constraints they were experiencing teaching about the civil rights in ways that aligned with the psychoanalytic theory of difficult knowledge. Difficult knowledge is knowledge that is experienced as an affective burden by the learner. Daphne and Thelma's identities and contexts allowed them to navigate the difficult knowledge in different ways. Thelma felt very constrained and in a vulnerable context, while Daphne felt more confident and was able to make specific pedagogical choices about how to teach difficult knowledge to her young students. However, in both cases, there was an overwhelming effect of whiteness in how they navigated the difficult knowledge of racism and taught about the civil rights movement. In fact, difficult knowledge operationalized as a tool of whiteness in their teaching practices and how they reflect, reflected about their teaching. They both chose to decenter and depoliticize race and anti-racist work. Their teaching also supported a hegemonic narrative about racism being over, and in some ways they equated racism with hardship and any random act of kindness or activism as similar to anti-racist work. Daphne and Thelma's cases remind us that critical theories of race must be conceptual tools central to social studies teacher education. With critical theories of race as part of their toolkit, teachers can reflect on the role whiteness is playing in how they navigate teaching difficult knowledge and thus better support their well-intentioned goals of teaching civil rights history in ways that dismantle the structures of racism today. Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Samantha Gutrera and I am a history education strategist based in Toronto, Canada. What that means is that I help individuals and organizations teach history in ways that I identify as more meaningful, transformative, and inclusive for their students. And informing this work is a real commitment to intersectional feminist theory, transnational feminist theory, critical race theory, and as this chapter will show, whiteness studies as well. My chapter is chapter 18 in this collection and it's called it is hard to admit your own group did wrong, how whiteness becomes centered in the Canadian social studies classroom. In this chapter, I look specifically at one teacher of how she centered whiteness in the Canadian history classroom, especially for her racialized students, because she was able to uh, articulate a Canada first discourse as identified by McKay, and that Canada's history needs to be taught first before histories of multiculturalism and diversity, but also how she was able to rationalize this because of the evocation of a good white discourse, as Sullivan identified. Um, I am a good white. I, I recognize that we need to bring in more diversity. Therefore, I am better than the white teachers who don't do that. Therefore, I'm in the best position to be able to control the narrative related to Canada's first what that does, and this is within a very long tradition, is continuously center whiteness in how we understand multicultural narratives. It is by controlling and isolating these narratives as other to this kind of central Canada first narrative that maintains a vision of Canada as a benevolent and tolerant country that, quote, allowed diversity to happen. While this is a deep dive with one teacher, as a consultant for the last 10-15 years, I've seen this very similar discourse being articulated in uh, classrooms and public history sites across Canada. And I think that the more that we identify the ways that we are invoking things like a Canada first narrative or a good white narrative in these implicit ways in our practices, we can better see the explicit ramifications of this and help dismantle the ways that we are continuing white supremacy in our classrooms and our historical narratives through this work.
I hope you enjoyed this chapter. You can see more about my work on my website at www.samanthacatrera.com. That's www.samanthacutrara.com. Thanks so much. Hello, Visions of Ed listeners. I am Amy Munger, an assistant professor in the Department of Teacher Education at Michigan State University. My chapter is called Whitewashing the History of Education, Laying Bare the Pervasive Power and Presence of White Supremacy in a Teacher Education Course. It explores curricular decision-making and the practical use of post-colonial theories to examine my History of Education course, a course which I taught as a faculty member at Green Mountain College, a former liberal arts college in Poultney, Vermont. In this brief summary, I will talk about the theories driving my decisions, but I encourage you to read the chapter, which provides more detail on how students navigated both this course and our conversations about race, racism, whiteness, and white supremacy. I had a fair amount of autonomy at Green Mountain College, which allowed me to develop this course to align with my vision for what a foundations course should encompass, a course aimed at amplifying voices of the historically marginalized and dismantling a difference as deficit model. I wanted to focus primarily on interdisciplinary modes of inquiry to eliminate how, according to Bowman and Godesman, complex ideas such as race, class, and gender operate in educational settings. Since much of my research has employed post-colonial theories to unpack and reveal colonial legacies of power presented in popular media and academic resources, it seemed appropriate to apply similar theoretical lenses as I developed this course. Drawing upon Vanessa Andriotti's work in global citizenship education, theorizing through a post-colonial lens with a focus on, quote, reviving and protecting voices that have historically been subjugated by colonial violence, end quote offered pathways for students and me to engage in the process of learning to unlearn. I employed Aylin Goodwin's definition of curriculum, which she describes not simply as subject matter content and instructional procedures, but as a tool of acculturation and a depository of US national and cultural values, and which has the power to emancipate or colonize. In order to lay bare the pervasive power and presence of white supremacy in my revised history of education course required an overt pushback on the curriculum that E. Wayne, e. Wayne Ross argues teaches myths instead of encouraging critical explorations of human existence. As I selected texts, crafted lesson plans, and facilitated course sessions, both Goodwin and Ross's definitions of curriculum served as a reminder of the power of language and narrative to shape and give meaning to experiences as well as its power to silence them. Given this, this course was not an ode to white, male-dominated articulations of historical content. Discussions about race, racism, whiteness, and white supremacy were intentional in every session. And, as a dangerous citizen, I recognize that teaching is a political act, and rather than proceeding through a reckless and false lens of neutrality, I took an advocacy stance by designing this course so that students and I could walk alongside the experiences of marginalized people disrupting dominant narratives along the way. Thanks for listening. I'm Erin Adams, Assistant Professor of Elementary Social Studies Education at Kennesaw State University. My chapter is called Grammar Matters. As Professor Eduardo Bonilla Silva proposed, racial domination necessitates something like a grammar to normalize the standards of white supremacy as the standards for all sorts of everyday transactions. 
rendering domination almost invisible. And it's with that sentiment uh, that I undertook this study to understand the sentences that my pre-service teachers were writing in response to a podcast episode that they listened to, The Forgotten History of How the Government Segregated America, which is based on the book, The Color of Law. And you might recognize similar sentences that your students write. So they said things like, zoning rules were recommended. Jim Crow laws were put into place. African-Americans faced challenges. These were sentences written by my predominantly white students. And the problem with these sentences is that they are lacking a doer. They're mostly written in passive tense. And Wanner calls this an agent-demoting construction. And so in this chapter, I describe four mechanisms for invisibilizing whiteness, and that's narratively invisibilizing, not actually invisibilizing, passive tense, blame the bank, othering, and the use of past and future tense, or more precisely, the refusal of the present. And this is really important because it is in the early years, obviously, that teachers are teaching students how to construct sentences. And they're also introducing students to the world and to social studies education in a formal sense. And researchers have found that students are able to understand the difference between mistakes were made and making mistakes. In other words, they can identify passive and active tenses as young as three years old. And so when we use passive tense in that way, we're giving students a skewed sense of history and reality. So I think that sentence construction can be a small but powerful intervention that we can use with the students that we teach, whether they're pre-service students or students in K-12. Thank you. Hi, this is Elizabeth Kenyon from Kent State University, and I am sharing my chapter, Tenets of Social Studies as Tools of Whiteness, Dismantling the Myths. Um, And I want to give a quick shout out to Dan and Mike for making room on Visions of Ed. I love the pod for us to share the chapters from this book. So this chapter is about three tenets or myths of social studies beliefs our pre-service teachers often arrive with uh, that maintain white supremacy. And this is not an exhaustive list. These are three that were particularly apparent in my own experience and research. And those are the belief in a need for a safe space, an unbiased classroom, and in a neutral narrative. So safe spaces are problematic for a lot of reasons. One of them is that safety is not possible for a lot of students from marginalized identity. Both physical and mental and emotional safety are just something that they haven't had much access to in their lives. And often students from dominant groups equate safety with comfort. And they use that sense of discomfort as a way to sort of shut down uncomfortable conversations that can really promote growth. So they end out using, you know, there's sort of the thought of white women's tears as a way to recenter white people in their comfort and move away from necessary conversation. There's also the myth of the unbiased classroom. I believe and research shows that as teachers, we are whole beings and we cannot just check a part of our lives and experiences and values at the door. Increasingly, everything is seen as political, including all discussions on race. And so since there is no such thing as a race-neutral classroom, it is impossible to have an unbiased classroom. Finally, 
and this is particularly important with regard to teaching history, there's the myth of the neutral narrative. A lot of times students will come into classes believing that if you just teach the facts and let students decide or stick with the textbook that this will provide students with a fair and neutral way of understanding the world. However, a lot of great research on textbooks, including uh, some included in this book, look at the ways in which textbooks actually promote white supremacy through othering and marginalizing and labeling folks who are not white and male and wealthy. So it's important um, to also help students think in terms of facts about who created these facts, which facts do we share with students, and how do we decide when something is a fact which also gets to the epistemological tensions within how we study the social sciences. Um, and a very short example of this is sort of who has the privilege of the pen um, historically and even today, who historically was able to write down their story and document it in ways that are needed to be considered valid for some historians. So there's a lot of different ways of just how we come to knowledge that are really laden with a Western European white focus. So we can definitely move beyond these myths. We can foster and encourage courageous spaces or spaces of risk in our classroom. We can emphasize uh, marginalized voices through guest speakers, through our curriculum, through the text we engage in. We can create opportunities for both instructors and students to share and reflect upon their beliefs and values that might otherwise be deemed overly political so that students know where everyone is coming from and we can also foster that criticality, that critical inquiry with students. I also think it's important that we redefine social studies itself. So thinking about our purpose, are we here to create safe citizens for a status quo or to create change makers? Who is included in the social studies community and who is not? And this also gets to revisiting our narrative. A lot of our narrative deals with official spaces, formal spaces of social studies and therefore excludes citizenship schools, freedom summer schools, schools within the Black Panther movement, citizenship education that is done on, um, on indigenous, in indigenous nations and several other places. So all of, you know, revisiting our narrative and our purpose should also assist us in revisiting that identity. I have a handout that I've actually updated since uh, writing the chapter with lots of resources. It's just one page for teaching and helping students think about these things. Please, please, please email me if you are interested in it. Thanks again. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having us. This was great. Thanks. It was great. So where can our listeners find more of your work online? Well, I'm on Twitter at A.M. Hawkman. Uh, you can find me there or my email address, andrea.hawkman at usu.edu. Reach out if you have any questions about the book or want to talk about more work decentering whiteness. I'm also on Twitter at SB Shear. And you can email me anytime, shearsb at uw.edu. You know, I have so I have a list of, of my, my work on my website, uh, sarahshearphd.com, and, you know, love hearing from teachers. So, you know, please reach out. That's great. We will definitely make sure to get those both in the show notes. And we'll also add, you know, the um, not only the link to the book, but, you know, other books and articles and things we mentioned during the podcast. Um, so please check that out. And we hope to definitely continue the discussion on Twitter and on sarahshearphd.com. Maybe we can even get her to add a chat function to the site. 
Hey, no problem, Dan. <laughs> At the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative education, or you're bored, you just want to chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also sometimes on Facebook. And if you haven't already, and really, come on, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and literally anywhere you'd like us to be. Maybe not literally anywhere. No, not but literally. But now literally does mean Look, figuratively. Figuratively, yeah. I know people use that interchangeably. I don't like it. Because in the dictionary, it, it no, it words. means both. That makes no sense. But you know what does make sense? Writing us a five-star review. And if you do that, we will read it on the air. And we'd also like to thank our uh, editor who put this episode together and wove together all the different pieces from authors. So thank you to Zach Seitz, Zach Seitz. of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas. Find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. You said that like you weren't sure. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.